Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. It's great to be back uh, from being away, having some time uh, near the beach, enjoying the wet weather there, (laughs) camping. It was some some great time with family and friends. Uh, But we did miss you, and it's good to be back. Uh, Let me start today, and as we continue our series in James, by asking you a rhetorical question. And here it is, ready? Do you understand what a rhetorical question is? Thank you, Caleb. Uh, a rhetorical question is a question that doesn't need a response, isn't it? Doesn't need an answer. And the, the answer to the question, do you understand? It's simple, isn't it? There's a, it's yes or no. There's only, there's only two answers technically. But the secret is when you understand, when you do understand what a rhetorical question is, how do you respond? It changes, doesn't it? You don't just give your answer yes or no. You understand by continuing to listen, by not responding. It kind of throws it upside down, doesn't it? What's needed? So when you understand that fact, that truth, it changes how you respond. Not giving the answer yes or no, but continuing to listen. And that's, uh, that's just a quick introduction Because today we're turning to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, which is one of the most famous and controversial passages in James. And it's coincidentally full of rhetorical questions. Uh, But I want you to keep that idea about rhetorical questions and that kind of upside-down response in mind because that's, that's really what's at the essence of this passage here. So turn with me if you would, with your Bible or on the follow along on the screen uh, where we have the verse. We're going to start, we're going to read from verse 14 of chapter 2. Here it comes. 14? No, it's in chapter, it's in chapter 1. That's interesting. Oh, we'll leave that then. Uh, You can follow along or listen. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, James writes, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Well, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith 
and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Can you see why this passage presents difficulty for many? It's not because it's unclear, is it? It's it's very clear. It only makes one point in this passage, and he explains it pretty well. And if you want a summary verse for it, verse 24 captures it pretty well. You see a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That's that's kind of summarizing what he's he's saying there. Why is this problematic for people? Well, it's because how how do we read this alongside other parts of the Bible, like... Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that says, where Paul writes, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James says, it's not by faith alone. Paul says, it's by faith separate from works of the law. And similar verses in Galatians 2, uh, verse 16, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're saved through faith. By grace alone. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not about what we do. Paul writes in these passages. It's about our faith trusting what God has done through the Lord Jesus. So how do we hold these two passages together? How do, especially how do we read James alongside that great Reformation motto? that came in the 16th century as many broke away from the Catholic Church and its traditions and its emphasis on doing good works as necessary for salvation, and they proclaimed faith alone. Faith alone is what's crucial for salvation. How do we hold these together? Well, we need to think and remember who is Paul writing to here. This is, this is key. He's writing to, we've heard, he's writing to Jews who have been spread throughout uh, the Roman world, but particularly he's writing to Christian Jews, people of Jewish descent who have been converted as followers of Jesus. And he calls them again and again throughout this, he calls them brothers and sisters. They're part of the family. They're members of churches. And I don't know if you notice as we've read through, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 9, and in chapter 2, verse 1, he describes them as believers. Chapter 2, verse 1, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he's writing to. People of faith, isn't it? These are people he's not writing to, to try and convert them. He's not writing here to spread the message of the gospel about how to be saved. He's writing to churches full of people who, in theory, have already heard that message and already responded. In fact, nowhere in James does he explain about Jesus dying for sin 
rising in triumph and people responding to that as the means of salvation. In fact, that's why Martin Luther famously called James or labelled it an epistle of straw um, because it doesn't contain the firm foundation of the gospel that he saw was so necessary for Christians to build their life on, that message of Christ crucified for sins. Nowhere does James explain that. He's talking to people who, in theory, should already know this. And so the question isn't, how do we get saved? That he's trying to address. He's answering the question, if you are saved by faith alone, if you are saved by faith, what is the nature of this faith? That's the kind of question he seems to be addressing in this section. What is the nature of faith? And so he, he begins... What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can this type of faith save someone? And he goes on and he explains this type of faith, the faith without deeds that I'm calling dead faith as opposed to the faith that James advocates for, faith together with deeds, deed faith, dead faith and deed faith. It's taken me three weeks of holidays to come up with that brilliance. There, there it is. Uh, James is addressing people who believe. But he wants to address the issue that perhaps some of them, their faith isn't what it should be. For some of them, they have dead faith. And so he says, no, that's not, that's not good. And he gives the examples and it's shocking you're, kind of, you're there in church and you notice some other people who don't have enough food, who aren't dressed, they don't have clothes to keep themselves warm, and, and they go, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Go, be warm. We're part of God's family. We love each other. I hope things turn out well for you. But does nothing about it. Is that the behaviour that should characterise faith? Can you say, I believe in in God, I'm following Jesus, and yet treat each other so abominably? They They just don't go together, do they? That's what James is saying. What good is it with these rhetorical questions? Well, it's no good. This type of faith is dead. It's not alive. It's not producing any fruit. It's not giving us any evidence of change in life. This is faith alone, without works. This is what we call sometimes nominal faith. When people say, I'm a faith, and they claim it in name, I call myself a Christian. I might tick that box on the census when it comes. And yet, that's all it is. It's just a name and it's an affiliation I make formally, but it's all external. It's all just words. The faith is something that's for out there. It's not something that shapes and changes me. This faith is dead and it's ugly and it's useless or empty or vain. And in fact, 
I think this, this idea is right at the heart of the third commandment. Should not take the Lord's name in vain. I think it's one of the most understood parts of the Bible, misunderstood parts of the Bible. That it's not so much talking about saying the actual name Yahweh improperly. It's talking about carrying the name of Yahweh, being called Yahweh's people, and that meaning nothing in the lives, day-to-day actions. Israel had a problem with this right throughout their history. They called themselves the Lord's people, and yet again and again, before the nations, the witness they gave was that that means nothing. And that's the problem that James sees here in amongst these Jewish Christians. He doesn't want there to be these people who are calling themselves Christians but yet having no impact, no, no shape and no way it changes their lives. It's like when you, you understand what a rhetorical question is but you still burst out with an answer. Well, it's, it's still, it hasn't worked its way through yet, has it? That knowledge, it might be there in theory, but it's not shaping how you respond. Now, the alternative James wants people to, to pursue is deed faith. Faith that is accompanied by action. Verse 22, he talks about in relation to Abraham, and he sums up here, you see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. They weren't contradicting each other. He wasn't saying, I'm trusting the Lord and not trusting him by my actions. No, he trusted him even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Very costly action of faith. God says, sacrifice Isaac. Abraham obeys. His faith and his actions go together. And that's what this this example here, James gives, illustrates. You see, he Abraham received some promises from God. And you can read about them in Genesis 12 and particularly Genesis 15, where it says Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. God counted him righteous, as we're told in Genesis 15, because Abraham believed. God, Abraham hears what God says, the promises he makes, and Abraham accepts it. His heart trusts in what God has said. And at that point, God credits Abraham with righteousness. God counts Abraham righteous because of his faith. But that's not the end of the story. See, in verse 23, James is explaining this. He says, Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, this is the Scripture of, verse, of Genesis 15, verse 6. And where was this Scripture fulfilled? James says this was fulfilled when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Now that happened more than, more than 20, maybe even 30 years later. God credited Abraham as righteous 
But James is saying, well, the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham is considered righteous, not just because he said it, but because he was willing to put his faith into action. This is the example. Abraham doesn't just say he believes, he goes follows through. And notice there's this, there's this phrase that's being used, he was considered righteous. It's used a couple of times. There in verse uh, 21, it's used in verse 25 of a different example. Uh, the, the prostitute Rahab, it said. Uh, she's someone who doesn't have a, doesn't come up for a long time during, during Scripture, only a small part of the story. Uh, but she's a foreigner. She's not part of God's people. But she's heard of them. She's heard of what God's done. And what is her hearing? How does it lead her to respond? She recognizes the Lord. She knows he's the boss. He's the one in charge. He's the one controlling things. He's the one who needs to be responded to with trust. So she throws her lot in with him. And she houses the spies that come from Israel to check out the land. She hides them from the authorities, her own people who are trying to rat them out. And she sends them off in a different direction. Hebrews 11 sums it up. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. See, she has faith and she acts on it. They go together. And she is considered righteous, James says in verse 25, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And there was again there in that verse 24 where James sums it up. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, if you're reading an older version of the NIV, the one published in 1984, or if you're reading uh, from the ESV translation, or if you're reading from the CSV, the Holman, you might notice that each time where it says considered righteous, where I've read that, it uses the word in those translations, justified. A person is justified, not by faith alone, but by what they do. But didn't Paul say in Romans 8, in Romans 3 verse 28, that we're justified apart from works of the law? This is one of the key things that people have grappled with. How are we justified? And what we need to realise is that Paul is using that word in slightly in a slightly different way to James. Paul's using it more in line with when with when Genesis says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, counted righteous in God's sight. That's that's more in line with what. Paul means when he says justified. It's what happens in God's sight. He declares us righteous by faith, totally apart from works of the law. We don't need to achieve a certain level of goodness. We don't need to tick off enough commandments. Yes, I've obeyed that and that and that, even though I'm still struggling with these ones. No, we're justified, counted righteous in God's sight. He declares us righteous. Because we trust in Jesus. 
Now, what does James mean when he says justify? Well, it's why this latest version of the NIV has translated it differently. It means something more along the lines of proved righteous. That person has been demonstrated righteous. Or he is, as it's translated, considered righteous. It's obvious that these these people are righteous, that Abraham's righteous. Why is it obvious? Well, it's not obvious because he says he trusts. It's obvious we can consider him righteous because we see the actions bearing out his faith. Why do we, is Rahab considered righteous? Because she acted on her faith. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous, proved righteous, demonstrated righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It's not just what they say or what we think might be going on internally for them. It's by their actions bearing it out. That's what James wants people to understand. We don't consider each other righteous just because we kind of wear the Christian hat because we claim that name of Christians. We don't even consider each other righteous just because we are members of church here together. What reason do we have to have confidence that we are righteous in God's sight? Well, it's as we see the faith that we proclaimed put into action, isn't it? That's one of the reasons why we have both baptism and confirmation as a church. Baptism where someone proclaims faith, they say, I'm, I'm, I'm a member. Confirmation is when we as the church go, yes, we see your actions of faith. We see faith working out in your life. We as the church commend you for it and encourage you in it. And want to state publicly that we see it. We see your profession in life. Faith and deed need to go together. Deed faith, not dead faith. Um, Here he is. One of the old guys, William Tyndale. He summed up the difference here really well. Faith as, and as faith only justifies before God, so deeds only justify before the world. God can see our faith. He knows whether we're really trusting him. He doesn't make us prove it in order to be righteous in his sight. But before each other, we can only tell based on what we do. And there's big consequences for this, isn't there? James is passionate about it. He wants people to get it because there's big consequences for our dead faith versus deed faith. What does dead faith lead to? Well, it leads to people being deceived. They think things are all good. They go along to church. They continue along their patterns. But it's useless. It's dead. It's like a body without the spirit. You notice the demons that he mentioned there is the example of this faith? You think, you think you've got faith without the deeds? You know what? Even demons, 
They believe in God. They could recite the Nicene Creed, all the lines, and say, yeah, these things are true. But what does it mean for their stance before God? They're still acting as his enemies. They know who he is, and they're living lives that are opposed to him. Even though they might technically assent to that truth, it's not shaping how they respond. Well, it slightly is because they shudder, don't they? They know who God is. They know they're his enemies. And they, there's an inherent fear captured in that. They know judgment's coming. Even though they don't want, they don't want that to be true. What are the consequences for dead faith? It's useless. It does not save. What are the consequences for deed faith? Well, the true faith, the true trust in Jesus that bears out in action, it shapes all of our life, doesn't it? It transforms us in such a way that we as brothers and sisters can be confident that we are righteous, confident of our profession of faith, that it's true, that it means something. And like Abraham, when we have this faith, the reality is that we are God's friends. And what an astounding privilege. Abraham was called God's friend twice in Isaiah 41 and also in 2 Chronicles 20. That's the reality, though. Jesus called his disciples his friends. Why? He said, if you obey my instructions, I call you my friends. Big consequences. Righteous in God's sight. Saved. Able to be his friends. Now, if you ask me what NRL team I support, I would probably say I'm not really interested in NRL, don't. But if you push me, and if there was a if there was a question on the census that asked me which NRL team do I support, I would tick the box that said St George. I don't go to St George matches. I don't watch them on TV. I could not even name a single player who currently is part of the St George squad. The closest I've been to St George Lee's club is stuck in a traffic jam on the road that goes past. The only reason why I would tick St George is because years ago I decided that St George would be my team because my friend went for St George and it was his team and I thought I wanted to, in my affiliation with him, be affiliated with the things that he was connected with. His team was St George, so I thought I'd make it my team. But you know what? This is allegiance, faith without deeds. It has no bearing on my life. I don't act on my support of St George at all. It's empty. Friends, we need to recognise the uselessness of acting like that when it comes to God. It's okay. If it has no consequence for me in St. George. We're neither of us worse or better off. 
by that arrangement. But when it comes to God, a useless, dead faith that's empty, that's a sham, we need to recognize it and avoid it, flee from it. That nominal Christianity, maybe you ticked, I'm a Christian on the census. Maybe I was, you were baptized as a child. Maybe you went to a Christian school. Maybe your parents were Christians. Just the name of being a Christian isn't true faith. Abandon it. Give up hope of that. Pursue true faith. Faith from the heart. Faith that is alive and active and faith that's transforming your life as that upside-down perspective of the gospel that God the Son came to earth and died for our sins and rose in triumph over death, giving us new life. As that shapes you, changes who you are as a person, changes how you think, how you feel, how you relate to each other and to the world, changes what you do with your money, changes what you do with your time, Changes what you do with your future. Changes what you do as a family. Is this the kind of faith that you have? A faith that's not alone. A faith that is connected with deeds. It's worked out in actions. What particular actions is James concerned about? Well, he gives the example of the brother or sister who's in need and their needs aren't addressed. But we don't have to stop there, do we? The type of actions that faith looks like, it's, it's having joy amidst trials. It's taking pride even in your humiliation. It's not blaming God when you're tempted, but thanking him as the source of every good thing. It's pursuing true religion, true religion that seeks to alleviate the needs of others, even when there's, there's really no benefit to me. It's loving each other impartially, not just caring about those who are most popular or who are most able to pay me back. Oh, I just find it easiest to love. It's caring without favoritism, isn't it? These are just some of the things that James has mentioned, and he goes on for the rest of the book. He's going to keep explaining how does faith shape our lives. So many ways. Is this the faith you have, friends? Deed faith. We're saved, aren't we? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. We cannot read this passage and say, I'm saved by faith, so I don't need to do anything. I'm saved by faith, so it doesn't matter what I do. I'm saved by faith, so oh, God will forgive me so I can continue sinning. 
Yes, we are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Is it? It's not. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for saving us through the Lord Jesus, through his death and resurrection, saving us from our sin, our evil deeds. Thank you that you don't require any goodness in us just to trust in what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we do this, as we truly rely on him, that more and more we will be shaped by this true living faith and that it will bear out in our deeds. We pray that each one of us here may have this true deed faith that James talks about. We pray that we may be considered righteous in the eyes of others and that we will be consistent and that our righteousness in your sight may be fulfilled by what we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.